0: Watch Big Solutions to Earth-Size Problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman.
1: And I'm Joe Jordan.
0: Today on the program, in honor of International Women's Day, a visit with one of the first chairs of a major oceanographic research institute, Mary Silver, whose pioneering work on marine plankton will explain everything from red tides to Alfred Hitchcock's movie The Birds. We'll visit with Mary in just a
1: moment. And we're going to be going with her off into the wild blue yonder. You know, there's that Air Force song for the skies. But hey, there's this other wild blue yonder out in the oceans which make up three quarters of the surface of this planet. So anyway, uh, we have a podcast to which you can subscribe by going to our fairly new website, planetwatchradio.com. Now, if you reverse those words, you get the way to email our guest a question during the interview or us anytime. And that's... RadioPlanetWatch@gmail.com. at gmail.com <laughs> so one one more time planetwatchradio.com to get the podcasts and then radioplanetwatch at gmail.com to email us
0: and you can also comment on facebook and we'll be monitoring that throughout the program so if you have any questions you can also reach us that way well here's a couple of news stories to start us off and then we will talk to mary silver Fake news is not just a problem for politics, it's a problem for science and public health. Researchers at Indiana University discovered that fake news spreads faster than real news on the Internet. The paper includes estimates that the number of automated bots is 60 million on Facebook and up to 48 million on Twitter, the latter based upon a recent study by Menzer and colleagues. It also cites an analysis that found the average American likely encountered one to three fake news stories in the months leading up to the 2016 United States presidential election. Misinformation, which affects how people vote, and also their trust in basic institutions and scientific and public health facts can influence people's behavior. The study's author proposes rigorous research into the effectiveness of high school courses that help students recognize illegitimate news sources. He also proposes specific changes to the powerful algorithms that increasingly control people's access to information online. The problem is particularly intractable because some research has found that repeating a lie to correct it can actually ingrain false information in the mind. Mengser says his paper is really a call to groups across the globe, academics, journalists, and private industry, to work together to attack this problem.
1: Just a comment on that story. Rachel used the word algorithm. A lot of people know what that means these days, but probably a lot don't. And basically, it's a recipe. It's a set of steps for doing something or other. And actually, we're going to use that word a little bit later in the show, too.
0: Yes, and we strive for factual information here on Planet Watch. So we uh, have taken the journalistic code of ethics that was adopted in 1923 very seriously and um, adhere to that strictly when we do radio shows. And that's why we focus on scientific facts. So we have Tommy Martin here with another story.
2: The Trump administration has lifted a ban on importing elephant and lion trophies from Zambia and Zimbabwe. The ban had been established under the Obama administration after the 2015 slaying of the iconic lion Cecil. Then in November of last year, the Fish and Wildlife Services announced they were lifting the ban. That announcement received bipartisan backlash, leading to President Trump tweeting that the ban was under review, even calling trophy hunting a horror show. Then this month, amid a flurry of other news, Fish and Wildlife Services quietly announced they would evaluate import applications of trophies on a case-by-case basis. There is currently no executive director of Fish and Wildlife Services, and the deputy director appointed by Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke is a member of Safari Club International, a group which advocated against the ban. Elephant populations have declined by two-thirds in the past three decades, leaving just 400,000 left. To combat these demands for, uh, for ivory, Last year, the Chinese government announced it would stop the sale of ivory.
0: Well, yay for China. Let's keep uh, hoping the United States follows suit and leads the world in conserving these amazing creatures that, you know, have memories that go back. 40 or 50 years.
1: Yeah, when I was a kid, we always heard them say on cartoons, an elephant never forgets. It's (laughs) true.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, I read an article in National Geographic that said that um, the matriarchs are the ones that remember where the watering holes are, even during droughts. So even though they're in the middle of the sandy arid desert. um, She can lead them, the rest of the tribe, (laughs) through um, just trackless desert to find watering holes that she remembered the way to by the stars, I guess, you know, 40 years prior when there was a, a recent drought. So that kind of memory actually saves them evolutionarily. And yeah. they think it's tied, you know, to various things like surviving a drought.
1: Yeah, well, we need our elephants to thrive.
0: And we need our m- women to be our major. Yeah, yeah <laughs> right. It <Hey, laughs> shows I gotta, you why there's an evolutionary reason to have us lead.
1: Yeah, yeah. I got, hey, well, speaking of women, uh, you know, Mother Earth. <laughs> I got a couple items about Mother Earth. Um, <clears throat> one is... Um, uh, I hope you remembered to set your clock forward and you're not missing this whole show (laughs) as we speak. You know, this is the time that used to be just after 1 p.m. California time right now, 4 p.m. on the East Coast and so on. But there is another time milestone approaching. We'll talk more about it next week. But the spring equinox, or I guess I shouldn't be northern hemisphere chauvinistic in the southern hemisphere. It's the fall equinox is coming up uh, March 20th. And uh, at that time, that's one of the two times of the year when the Earth is sideways in its orbit. Now, what do I mean sideways? Well, if you were on the sun looking at the Earth, the Earth's axis would be, you know, tilted uh, maximally, 23 and a half degrees from straight up and down. So the Earth's axis is perpendicular at right angles to the string, the imaginary string connecting the sun to the Earth. Because of that... There's a breakdown, or, or what they call cracks, in the Earth's magnetic field, that let in extra amounts of uh, solar uh, ionizing radiation, which causes an abundance of aurora. It's been kind of a mystery. I mean, it's been known for a long time that the equinoxes are especially good time. I mean, the weeks around the equinoxes are especially good times to see the aurora, even at far more temperate latitudes than usual even if the sun's not particularly active. And it's still a bit of a mystery, but th- there's a phenomenon called the Russell McFerron <laughs> uh, phenomenon, which uh, those are the last names of two researchers who kind of explained it uh, a few decades ago. So anyway, uh, if you go to spaceweather.com, you can sign up to be notified when an aurora may be coming your way. So... uh Yeah, stay tuned for that. The other item I'll just very quickly go through because we're going to have a guest on the show next week, a fellow named Peter Fikowski, who's very active in Citizens Climate Lobby, which we've featured once before, and it's about time we do it again. He's also involved in efforts to get carbon out of the atmosphere on a massive scale, which I think I've been saying it's super important in addition to just stopping all carbon emissions. Well, anyway, there's been this study by the Institute of Applied systems which shows uh, it goes through 5 or 7 different uh, simulations of different earths of the future namely the the things that people on the earth do everything from being extremely green and zeroing out and even going negative with carbon emissions to just being total <laughs> You know, high on the hog, you know, overpopulated, extremely smokestack and radioactivity economy. Uh, and and uh, there, there are interesting results that came from this study showing that we still may have time to actually limit warming to 1.5 degrees centigrade above the current average temperature of the globe. Although it may peak above that for a while, but by 2100 was the target to get it back down to only one, only 1.5 degrees centigrade, which is almost 3 degrees Fahrenheit, warmer than what it is now, which is already too warm. But anyway, stay tuned for more on all that, and we'll talk in depth about that next week.
0: Where can people read that article for
1: more uh, w- we'll post it on, ra- on uh, PlanetWatchRadio.com. You got to remind me. Or on Facebook. That. Uh,
0: on our Facebook. Yeah, I've page. got
1: the reference. It was Institute of Applied Systems. Um, and uh, anyway.
0: Great. Okay. Thank you, Joe. And um, now we'd like to bring on our guest, Mary Silver. She has um, been in the department. She was heading the department at UC Santa Cruz, um, the Oceanography Department. She was one of the, if not the first woman to get her PhD at Scripps university in san diego and um she has been there really since the very beginning of uc santa cruz's scientific ocean exploration and research and welcome mary for international women's day a couple days late
3: thank you i'm excited to talk about all
0: of this Um, we're excited to have you uh tell me again so you arrived at scripps
3: as a student with what year um it was um let me see approximately uh, 22 (laughs) plus 41 which equals uh 63 63. okay thank you for the help Mm -hmm. (laughs) okay
0: yeah so you said you were the first woman to head a major oceanographic institute um at UC Santa Cruz. Is that correct? That's
3: correct. Yeah. What was uh,
0: it like to be the only person a uh, female person in that department?
3: Well, yeah, I, yeah, there was no de- department. I I was hired with the thought that they would start a new program and it was now it's called the Ocean uh, Sciences, but uh, they didn't have it set up, so I was put into the biology department. And uh, I was asked by people in that department to teach general bio classes, and I almost died in the sense I came to do ocean science, but uh, there were people then that pushed hard to, in fact, continue to uh, form the ocean science uh, department. And so, with the help of a, a very helpful dean, I was taken out of the temporary biology department, which I would have stayed forever if not. But and and then I started the department, uh, and that was. Um, Uh, It was phenomenal, and and we grew slowly, and now there are probably about 13, 14 faculty members. But when I came in, it was me, and then a couple years later, another person. It was a slow start.
0: So you really pioneered it, and just to give context to that time, I've been showing my students old magazines from the 1960s. The message for women was stay at home and vacuum and cook and, and like, <laughs> polish your husband's nails. I mean, this is, these were the ads we were reading. It was really pretty pathetic. We forget how far we've Do come. Do men get
1: their nails polished? Apparently in this Gosh. ad, all you
0: could see was the guy's shoes and her kneeling by him and polishing his okay. nails. and this the
3: shoes, the shoes yeah. I never... Uh, um, fix fixed my nails so I I would not have been a suitable person. <laughs> <laughs> they got dirty and ragged so no but one you, would you must
0: have encountered some sexism though back then because oh, it was absolutely. really not done.
3: This is absolutely well where where it really was is my first uh entry into the oceanography field and I was the third person woman who had survived in the sense for the uh I think it was twenty or thirty years and uh Anyhow it was it was hard but there were heroes and my hero was my mentor uh, Dr. John McGowan and he continues he's in his 90s and we talk wow. about science together and we want to write a paper shortly together so um, there are heroes in my life and I would not be where I were and they are they were men of course because there weren't women there to do this
0: so they, they believed in you and they knew you could do great things and they just kept on. Reminding. Right,
3: they did. Uh, it was positive and the, there was a slight f- hint of ferocity behind, which really helped me. <laughs> We I need
0: to be fierce. <laughs> <laughs> you don't seem like a particularly fierce person, so the people around you needed to they, be fierce.
3: <laughs> they did that.
1: And so I'm what, grateful. So what might this paper be about? You can just give us a little sneak preview, the one you're going to write with your, your hero and mentor, John uh, McGowan, was it?
3: Yes, John McGowan. Well, we had talked about there's a record of sampling since the 1940s. Uh, you know, at the, after the end of the war, and uh, it's called Cal- the Cal Coffee Program, and they're taking samples from, um, it started from the San Diego area up to Oregon and so on. So there's a huge database, and the idea was, I think, to put together information about the possible change in the uh, algae, the oceanic drifters, uh, in this time zone. But um, we're both too committed to other things and maybe too lazy. I mean, it would be a horrendously difficult but wonderful thing to do. And we'd have to, they didn't at the time that I came... They didn't have samples of the plants. So the way I did my thesis was I took the stomachs of other animals and looked at what was in them from a known location. And then I constructed the story of what the plants were in the area. Oh, so and what
0: kind of animal stomachs did you open up? Most people would kind of grimace at that idea. Oh, it was my <laughs> very favorite,
3: which is a relative of ours. It's called a salp. Now it doesn't have a brain. It looks like a barrel and it pumps its way along the ocean and in fact if i tell the story i use the salp stomach to unravel the uh, hitchcock story
0: oh we're going to have to oh, tell we gotta that. Hear about but, that but but yes. people should look up and you should post a picture of a salp because they're literally tubes that like move along
3: <laughs> they're like a bear, uh, a, a wooden barrel with uh, you know a link uh, um, uh, around them and they have a muscle and so they They're just a stomach, basically.
0: Right. A moving stomach.
3: With mucus in them. And as they (laughs) go forward, it's like having a... You know, uh, uh, a tea uh, uh, device. You know, to to strength to get the the uh, you know to filter out to hold the, this and let the other water pass How through. How do you
1: spell selp? Is it s
3: a s a l p? Selp. And it's our cousin. It's it's in <laughs> we're, the we're chordate family, really uh, but we're slightly smarter than they are.
0: We're related slightly. to brainless eating machines. That's exactly. exactly makes a lot of sense when you go to dinner <laughs> with some of my friends. Eh?
3: You would never want to eat. Them I don't know. <laughs> Uh, they're not so good? No, they're gelatinous, and uh, they would cover your teeth, and then you'd have fecal material in
1: your food. So. Oh,
0: not good. Not good at all. Sorry. Bad, bad idea.
1: <laughs> you know, just that phrase about a swimming stomach Lost reminds me of uh, uh, late, another late, great researcher who uh, Mary worked with uh, and knew uh, was Ken Norris, who oh, Rachel yes. and I spent a lot of yes. quality time with. And I remember him telling us that a jellyfish is basically a swimming brain.
0: <laughs> I think it's a swimming stomach. <laughs> yeah, that's
3: most of us are. <laughs> that's
1: how we survive.
0: Swimming stomach. Well, I'd like to give Griffin the challenge, if he's up for it, to see if he can find the birds.
1: The movie The Birds. Just and any
0: little clip Alfred from there, Hitchcock... and you can bring it up at any time. And we'll...
1: Alfred Hitchcock used to live around he here. He okay, so we're going to bring
0: it up now because we're going to tell a story about how they figured out What inspired Alfred Hitchcock to make the movie The Birds? It was a connected story to Santa Cruz. But first, we'll hear a little clip. I I watched that movie when I was a kid. I was terrified because I'd just been to Bolinas or uh, wherever they filmed that. So, Alfred Hitchcock got the idea for the birds from a news clip from the Sentinel, Santa Cruz Sentinel newspaper. And the paper essentially said, thousands of birds die on the lawns of the people of Santa Cruz, come in off the ocean, just die everywhere. And they had to get all the garbage companies to gather them in giant trucks and take them all away. They were hitting people's windows. They were flying into cars, but then they were dying. They weren't killing the people. They weren't attacking anyone, but they were definitely off. Something was wrong with the birds. Mm-hmm. These were sooty shearwaters, I believe. And you unraveled the mystery of why they were dying in such many numbers. And of course, Alfred Hitchcock, being the horror genius that he was, just changed that story into. Well, what if the birds just attacked people, <laughs> <laughs> including Tippy Hedrin and so school teachers birds, and children?
1: <laughs> went, the birds went crazy, and then the people went crazy, at least in his film, from that. That was but, really uh,
0: scary. Was yeah. Super, especially because the, the moment when the children were chanting that little rhyme, and it was totally quiet, and they, she was trying to lead them out of the schoolhouse, and they were everywhere on every wire, and to take a little bird and suddenly make it. Terrifying in great numbers was absolutely genius, Mm
3: -hmm.
0: but it came from a kind of a tragic natural event. Can you explain how you figured that out?
3: Okay. Well, first of all, I mean, the the birds weren't attacking, but they were dying, and their behavior was very odd. And uh, in fact, the the event that started was Hitchcock. uh, there was a a, a story, uh, another uh, novel about about this, oh. uh, that. Uh, so there was some basis from this other source, but Hitchcock came in, and, and I I've forgotten what, might have been the 50s or something like that, where there was a die-off of birds in this area, and they were running into, police cars, they were running into all kinds of things, and it. Uh, and we knew the day and we knew the the time that it actually happened. I looked up the newspaper and there were pictures in the newspaper of the birds, uh, you know, running uh, berserk. And so what I did is I got the uh, date of that and I went back to Scripps Institution of Oceanography where they have a museum of samples taken since the 1940s. Hundreds, if not thousands, when they go out on a a grid line from Southern California all the way up to uh, Oregon, and uh, there was a line with samples being taken at the time those birds uh, were dying in uh, this area. Samples of samples of, of. the zooplankton the, the, that were ca- uh, captured by NET on these sites. So there were hundreds of samples being taken. And what I did is I got the, the uh, position of those, and I went back to Scripps in San Diego, and I uh, asked if there were bottles taken from Monterey Bay and... Um, that I could look at, and there were samples of the zooplankton the the uh, ones that are f- filtered from the water uh, on exactly those dates when and so I got those, I cut them open uh, they were a little dubious of me taking their you know critical sample bottles, but these big quart jars full of stinky um, yes. you know uh, formaldehyde, and I opened up their stomachs and looked at them, and they were these uh, organisms known at the time as, they were called Nichea, which is the genus, the name. They looked like sort of a needle and they might be a tenth of a millimeter long individually. And they were considered benign creatures. They were all over the California current. Um, But what we did is we had learned from events to uh, about two decades before, in Santa Cruz, for the first time, what was affecting the death of sea otters and uh, various marine mammals. And uh um, I worked with the people who were trying to figure out the cause of death, and it's a long story, but it turns out there's a poison in what was thought was an innocent, healthy uh, ocean drifter called Nietzschea. So we took the samples from the Nietzschea and discovered it contained a toxin called domoic acid. And it was very poorly known, it had been just discovered as a killer of humans. Uh, about a decade before that on the East Coast. So I became, working with these people who were experts on birds and trying to figure out why the birds were dying, I worked with them and discovered this innocent common nichia, this diatom that is the base of the food chain, contains a terrifying toxin. And so then I went back to these bottles where the birds were foraging and took the stomachs of samples, took it out, and then had the toxin measured. And sure enough, the samples where the birds were foraging had toxic algae, and they were eating the toxin containing. And so that was the story, and it was a true story in a way. They weren't, you know, diving at people, but they were themselves dying of the toxin. So it was a fabulous story, and it was fun. It's a mystery, and it was very exciting. It was all over the paper. And I puffed and huffed and was very happy. Well, you are famous.
0: Uh, That was your 15 minutes of fame. But you're getting getting a second chance here on Planet Watch. We're speaking with Mary Silver. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman with Joe Jordan. And this is Planet Watch. And you
1: can email us at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com.
0: And if our interns or our students are in the... studio here want to ask a question please just throw up your hand and you're welcome to get on mic and I ask got a about
1: qu- quick question for mary something that obviously comes to mind domoic acid uh we get occasional blooms of that now mm-hmm. and it's a it's a serious neurotoxin right
3: absolutely and and
1: so why haven't there been more of these birds eating this stuff and dying all over the place incidents since then
3: okay that's a great one and the answer is basically i don't know because maybe It's happening, but there's another event that did happen that was, in fact, even grander in its terrible outcome. And that was the discovery of the death of many uh, uh, seals uh, and sea lions. And they were dying. No one could figure out what was happening. And uh, again, uh, this happened in the late 90s. Right before the turn of the century. And there were a uh, the, uh, lot of seals and sea lions who were dying, and they were eating, again, fish of, uh, of various sorts. And so um, it was a reiteration, but, and we understood what it was. But we can't go out and filter out all of these in the. I mean, there are thousands per milliliter, so you you just can't get rid of them. And
0: My question is, they weren't toxic originally. What made them get domoic oh. acid in them, right? They're just benign normally, so uh, what no, makes them make the, it?
3: Uh, actually, these ones, if they're there... They're they're toxic. I mean, I the see. toxicity level might change. So it's a matter of
0: degree of how many of them. There how are. many there are? So they just explode and then they become toxic because right. there's so many. You right. could eat a few of them and never have a problem. That's right.
3: And in the they yeah. were here in the past, but the numbers of them have increased. And the thought may be that it's climate change. So you're changing mm-hmm. the flora of and, and fauna of the ocean. And of course, we're part of that food chain, aren't we now? <laughs> yes. If you went down there and we'd. Uh, In fact, I went and did a study. I tried to talk to people all over the coastline. Did they eat... uh, shellfish and others when they, in fact we recognize they were there and you'd put out warnings but people say I don't believe it you're just trying to hold back and you go out and that happens. This is why fake news is so dangerous to your
0: health if you think that right. You know, the warnings about shellfish and fish are not real you're going to possibly injure yourself
1: <laughs> You know anyway. as a person who came out here from the east coast to the west coast to do mm-hmm. graduate study at UCSC back in the early 80's one of the interesting local facts that I learned and you can correct me on this, but the R months are the months when you do want to eat shellfish or don't want to. It's, it's, you know, all the R months are all in a row, you know, mm-hmm. Sep, September, October, November, December, January, February, March, <laughs> April, and then the others, May, June, July, August, are not our month. So which is it, anyway? And is, and is this is there anything to this?
3: Uh, very little
1: to it. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Well, at least it was an interesting <laughs> fact about right. alpha, the alphabet. Yeah.
3: Don't <laughs> but take the Oce- your life on it. Yeah, the oceanographers <laughs> like to use temperature and salinity levels as an indicator of the water mass and that what lives in it so that sticks to it pretty well if you know what those are you still they might not be there but that would be more likely to be found in those conditions so and it's more a warm a warm phenomenon uh, more likely to be in summer but again uh, there could be um, some other conditions, too. Okay. So
0: um, one question I had is, uh, have we got any better at predicting these blooms? And could they forecast them like they forecast weather and storms and things like that?
3: Um, I the, the honest answer is I don't know. Uh, I would assume if you got the right temperature, which would be a, a, a major earth issue, you know, how warm is it, and then the salinity, which is a uh, a result of the source of the material because we have higher and lower salinities. And the habitat that we think about a, that where a critter lives is defined by... How warm is it and how salty? And so those masses have typical uh, communities in them. So if we could figure out the physical part of it, maybe we'd be better at predicting the other.
0: So what are we doing now to warn people so they don't get poisoned by
3: toxic algae blooms? Oh, what we do is put it, we put it in the newspaper, we put signs up, and in fact the original... The uh, study of these toxin producers comes from the 1920s with San Francisco event, uh, which causes saxitoxin, which is the most poisonous alga, uh, um, uh, terribly scary. And you can use it to kill people, too. And it's been done, but we don't talk about that. But anyhow, um, there uh, if... Now, where was I again? We were oh, no. talking about
1: um, how we, we warn people. Notify. Oh, yeah. yeah.
3: If we s- knew the temperature and salinity, we could say this is a, an environment which could support. And then you could have uh, people, uh, a- as they do, on piers all up and down the California coast and looking to see if it's there. And then they turn it into the California um, um, state uh, testing uh, places, and they will see, okay, there's a low population, only 10 per mill, and then you watch it, and then you can do it. But I think they're probably, if you look lo- hard enough, you might find some all the time, but it would have to be large numbers before you're affected. And this is, again, not the worst poisoning. You can have a much wickeder Situation, and we don't have too much of it right now. Have people died from toxic algae blooms? Oh, 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 yeah. Uh, About a hundred got killed in in San Francisco, and then that and that was the first time I think people really went out and said, "There's something in the water that's killing us." When was that? That was about 1920, Mm. and uh, it was terrifying. And in fact, it was you can oh, there's. I mean, I got into this big time, but people used it. Uh, in fact, in some places uh, in the, um, not the Mediterranean, but in the Gulf of Mexico, where if you want to kill someone, you could use that. And uh, people sometimes died. And, just a little bay water or serve a them some water. fish. Yeah. Now,
1: this all relates to a fascinating thing I learned from Mary just this past week, talking about this, the prospects for the show. Uh, and again, you can correct me because I'm probably going to be wrong. But you said basically that uh, almost all plants in the ocean are edible to humans, uh, but not so for the animals in the ocean. Uh, and, but you were talking about a toxic algae. An algae is a plant, right? So I yeah, mean, there are these simple, exceptions,
3: right? And on on land, most plants have.
1: To- oh, that was what it was. Land, yeah. yeah, land versus has, land.
3: Right. And the, and the idea there is. Uh, that 's the way the plants survive. natural selection takes out those that are edible, so the ones over the billions of years on the plant or however yeah it 's I know a billion something or other um, those uh will yeah if if they're out there they 'll be eaten so the The reason we have toxins in almost all of our native plants is because they 've survived. Uh, on s- land. Uh, yes, on, on land. selection. I mean, if you're not eating, you, you perpetrate uh, yourself. Whereas
1: in the oceans, I mean, people do eat gas right. plants out of the ocean. We eat and- kelp.
3: Yeah. Right. Yeah, Kel, but the main is the the phytoplankton, the little diatoms and dinoflagellates. So most of them are not toxic. So otherwise we wouldn't have fish in the sea right. to the extent but we do this now. But
1: one a couple of exceptions we've been talking about were quite spectacular.
3: Right. And and <laughs> they and how often do those exceptions
0: happen? I mean, is it every 10 years? Is it every couple of years? How frequent is uh, these are these toxic algae blooms happening?
3: Uh, they're Uh, Often there are some every year, but they're in such low numbers that it's not a problem. You can eat the clams, um, but it's all a matter of uh, concentration. So how how often do these super blooms happen? Um, Probably at a certain time of year. My guess would be... Every other year or something like oh, this. that's and quite it's, often. Yes, and it could be bad here, but fine up in Napa uh, or off the north coast. So well, it depends It's super localized. On, it's localized hmm. in in the yeah. sense that, yeah, that maybe there's more nutrients, but the temperature and salinity is used as saying that's the habitat. Right. It's like a forest or a sandbar or whatever. So we look at the temperature and saline- salinity, and we can often find very low numbers of toxin
1: producers. And there's two things that all at the same time I want to talk to you about, but I'll just say what they are. One is two different kinds, it's two different kinds of trouble. We've been talking about people getting into trouble eating the wrong things out of the ocean. And you also told me a story that I want you to tell us about getting into trouble with academic institutions, and you're retired now, right? right. So you can say what you want to. So we're going to do that, but right now we're talking about these uh, toxic alga, and um, you know, red tides, bioluminescence, right. really intriguing stuff, and we'll get other people on this show to talk about that, but... Uh-huh. You were telling me about things like uh, sharks can see their prey swimming in the water because they light up all around their perimeter from the bioluminescence, and you thought that was great fun. And uh, anyway, tell us some things about the relationship between these toxic little tiny creatures and bioluminescence.
3: Well, if you can imagine tiny little lights that might be uh, one hundredth or a tenth, of a millimeter, and they each have lights, and when there's, when they're sometimes tousled uh, uh, a little bit like swimming through, they will uh, blink. And so as you move through the water, the little sparkles silhouette you. And that's been used by predators to locate fish to eat them. You could also think of, it could be a predator that would like to eat a person, but it's very unlikely. Uh, but there are times when they people can be surfing at nighttime. Obviously, you don't only see this at nighttime, and most surfers don't do it at nighttime, probably. Uh, it's not terribly health, uh, you know. I'm always scary. amazed
0: at the people who do surf at night, especially up near Anya Nueva when it's called Shark
3: Alley for a reason. <laughs> well, <laughs> they shouldn't do it if
1: it's <laughs> sparkling. First time <if> I, ever, <laughs> yeah, don't first time go I ever experienced it was down in Baja. We were swimming at night, and it was like stars and galaxies <gasps> streaming off our arms underwater. Right. And then in the Galapagos, I saw these sea lions swimming underwater. Uh, we had stopped in a cove on a sailboat, and it was like underwater ghosts. Right. It was just it's, miraculous.
3: It's fabulous. And they would be a, a warm water specimen, but they're called dinoflagellates, most of those. And um, they have, many of them will have their own toxin, but what they do is they're made visible by, uh, you know, whatever swims through the water. And actually it helps them because maybe it gets some of the consumers um,
1: somebody's phone is making a wonderful musical thing but this p- provides me the segue don't worry about it they'll yeah. they'll hang up maybe they're trying to answer what you're saying on the air um but uh yesterday i ran into somebody who is going to be a future guest on this show jonathan trent who rachel oh, yes. and i actually interviewed a long time ago he right. has done some pioneering work in the open ocean some with mary yes and i just i was talking at this nano world's fair event in san francisco yesterday on solar energy right. and I ran into Jonathan Trent up there. That event's still Mm -hmm. going on today, by the way. And... um he uh, talked about, you all have both told me about how you worked together. and and, right. and you've both told me about how you all got in trouble together because you were doing scuba, which was frowned upon oh, by oceanographers right, yes. because they were all envious of Jacques-Yves Cousteau. <laughs> and you weren't supposed to do that, but he got you into doing that, and it opened up a whole new, wonderful <laughs> epic in your career. That
0: was so. the controversy you wanted her to talk about? <laughs> Let her, yes. Seems a bit... Um, uh, getting into yeah, trouble with means. academia.
3: No, it's that's fabulous. There was... Because if you're a respectable oceanographer, you have to, at the time, work on a a, a boat. Uh, And And stay on the boat. Stay on the boat. And Cousteau who was loved by most people it was considered hey that's hokey that's not science because if you go in the water it's just it's you can't um, take data you're you know you're just in awe or whatever it doesn't explain but it was uh, the environment was that scuba was was Cousteau's stuff for people who sensationalism and so I had uh, in fact uh, a a friend and we were sneaky friends we uh, I worked with another woman who decided that they would start to study plankton uh, the open ocean creatures with scuba gear and they couldn't tell anybody about it but I befriended that group or one of the women in there and the two of us I came to respect because they saw behaviors no one had seen, and they saw them without putting first putting them full of formaldehyde and dead and falling apart. So, in fact, I was all excited that and. What I did is I asked Jonathan, the person you talked about, because uh, I wanted to study the plankton, and I suggested he go out. And he went out. This He was an annoying boy in my class because he <laughs> kept asking these questions. And finally I said, okay, you go out and look in the plankton and just look and see what, what's there. And he came back and said, Mary, I can't see a damn thing. It's all fuzzy out there. So what we did is said, okay, let's look at the fuzzy. And so we decided how we would make a collection, and it turns out it was tiny little particles which had organisms on them. So we got very excited, and we set up a way to do science. We had to be rather quiet about it, because uh, and we couldn't ask for money because it's not respectable. Well, what we did is those undergrad students did the sample. I worked with them about how to do the science properly, you know, in the sense of quantitative, and... They had a light and a tube, and they looked at the number of particles that passed through it in a time. And then I collected the samples, and they were loaded. It was like an island full of too many people. (laughs) So a massive microbial center. And so we published a, a paper in Science... On this, which just blew my mind and saved me because I was considered not doing respectable science. Is so this marine the marine snow, snow marine, that you're marine, talking about? This is marine you snow. You discovered marine snow, which with my undergrads, <laughs> who were doing something that is not kosher. But now it's considered it fine, right? You broke <laughs> right. that barrier. You broke the the gender barrier as a woman in the
0: science. Science
1: and, gone rogue.
3: But now. my wonderful guys, and later women, but they were mostly men then that mm-hmm. were our boys. They. And I have to say that Jacques <laughs> Cousteau was
0: responsible for me just becoming a complete nature right. lover. There was Wild Kingdom and yes. Jacques Cousteau, and I watched those religiously as a child. Right. And his wonderment at all the beauty under the ocean Absolutely. completely captivated me. Right. And I think got people to care about what's under the ocean Absolutely. when they couldn't see it
3: themselves. And they would provide money, to, or, so it helped the whole, all of us. Yeah. And I think now that's more accepted, but... Uh, who knows? I mean, anyhow, it was my wonderful students, both who uh, went on to become fabulous, well-known scientists, and they were goofy kids that uh, asked too many questions in class. Great and now they're story. famous scientists, and <laughs> they, you mentored
1: them to and, become. And you're a friend okay. of Sylvia Earle, right? Uh, uh,
3: yes, I've. Well, I, I we've. Yes, I respect her enormously, and we've talked together, and we've yeah, been at meetings together. Maybe you
1: can help us get her for an interview. She was supposed to be out here this past week to the big global wave conference where you and I talked. Oh, but right. She, she had to cancel at the last minute, but maybe maybe you got some connections there. Sylvia, <laughs> so okay, I'd love to do it. <laughs> so
0: before we go, Mary Silver, do you have any words of wisdom for perhaps young women who are thinking about going into the sciences on this international women's day week of 2018 when it seems sometimes we have to refight all these battles over again uh, do you have any advice for young women scientists who might be thinking about making this their career who might be i listening? should say
3: yeah i went to the conference this week and and there were women not as many as men uh riding the waves i think for the joy of it and just to, to realize that this is the biggest habitat on our earth and to be there and to look around and see, there could be nothing more fundamental about it. And, I mean, it's scary as can be at times and the other times it's, I think, like a being in a church, but an outdoor church, if you could say that, in the sense of looking and seeing an amazing sense of the wonder of the world. So
1: I just want to ask you, um, in my ad that I emailed out to hundreds or thousands of people about the show, mm-hmm. I kind of said oceans, past and future. We always want to know, and you know, you know way more than the average bear about the oceans, the wild, that wild blue right. yonder. What, what are your thoughts now, given what's going on in the world and? that priceless, precious, huge resource out there, the oceans. What are your thoughts on where that's headed, what we can do? uh, Is there hope?
3: There is hope, but what we have to do is part of it is a global warming issue. That's enormous. But what you can do is make sure that materials that are getting out to the sea that shouldn't be, uh, that they're not coming out so that you don't send... Um, s- send materials out that could be poisoning, especially the coastal areas, which are the richest parts of the ocean. So don't uh, allow. I mean, make sure the water that goes out is clean water, in the sense of no toxins, no no boxes. Uh, so that's our that's our job, um, and a reverence for it.
0: That's a really good place to leave it there so I want to thank you Mary Silver Sorry. for being our guest it's been a great pleasure and okay. um Good luck to you in all your next projects as they come about. (laughs)
1: Thank you. And feel free to hang out. I think you have to hang out with us because I brought you over here. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And I didn't (laughs) even give you the extreme acceleration treatment in my Chevy Bolt electric car yet. Remind me on the way home or to the wine tasting, which we might do. Make sure you have your seatbelt on anyway. Okay. So, uh, you know, I've, I've often wondered if, you know, you have speed limits, but I don't know if there's... An acceleration limit. Could could a cop nail you? You know, if you accelerate at an extreme acceleration for just a fraction of a second, you can very rapidly get up above the speed limit. But if if you stop short of exceeding the speed limit, even if you're accelerating in an outrageous amount, is there a... Is that... Uh, under the California Vehicle Code or any other vehicle code, is that is that a crime? I <laughs> do don't you know. want to
0: find out? <laughs> I mean, if you safe. break
1: people's You're necks safe. in your car... That's bad. <laughs> it's not going to be that bad, Mary. Um, but, um, uh, but I
0: will say that we probably have Highway Patrol and Santa Cruz Police Department listening. So in case you oh, see yes. a bolt <laughs> driving from it's the it's east side blue. <laughs> to the west side, keep out your book because you'll get to clock him accelerating. And I used
1: to call my Chevy Spark uh, Sparky. This one uh, I call Arc flash it's arctic blue and uh, electric electricians know that arc flash is actually kind of deadly but but anyway well, i have a question
0: um, for you before you go on a monologue because this is probably on everyone's mind since they lost an hour
1: oh yes <laughs>
0: why do we do this to ourselves and can we stop <laughs> daylight savings can we get rid of it now <laughs> well
1: i will just say happy daylight savings time i mean hey let's just roll with it you why did uh, we
0: start doing it what was the purpose originally
1: well uh, you know, that's one question. Uh, I don't know if anybody present can answer Maybe one of
0: our listeners I can have, answer since it. Since Tommy has his um, laptop open, I'm sure he can But understand. I have
1: another question, which I challenge our listeners to look up. I mean, I could have looked it up, but I want this to be an audience participation show. There is an algorithm. Remember, I promised you we would use that word again. There is an algorithm, just as there is for Easter, which, by the way, is coming up around the corner. The Algorithm for Easter is the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox. This year, it falls on April 1st, April Fool's Day. How often does that happen? That's an interesting question. But the other one is, what is the algorithm now? And it's different from when I was a kid. We didn't go to daylight savings time until the middle of April. Now it's like the beginning of March. What is the rule? What is the algorithm by which they determine when we switch, and in the fall when you fall back? Anybody know? I mean, look it up. Uh, tell us. <laughs> tell the world you can, you at radioplanetwatch at gmail
0: Here's another question that's related. I always thought it was interesting if you're on one side of a time zone and the other, but you are just across town. Um, how did that mess up people's appointments? Oh
1: yeah. Well, in fact, I lived in you know in Virginia. I grew up and. One hour out of Washington D.C. in Fauquier County, where my grandma, you know, my mom was one of nine farm kids. Uh, it was it was standard time all year whereas washington dc had daylight savings time for roughly half the year and of course there are states uh where i think arizona doesn't do daylight savings time and half of indiana doesn't or somewhere
0: sounds like temporal <laughs> anarchy we can't have this it's just going to mess up everyone's skype meetings and <laughs> cause great and the may. other
1: thing that's interesting is i was actually at my computer last night at 2 a.m uh, and uh, you know, it just went from 1.59 to 3 o'clock a.m.
0: I'm, I'm worried about you. Did you wait up for the... Uh,
1: <laughs> no, no, it just, I don't okay. know. I
0: was just a little but worried about Joe for having waited for his computer to turn. It's and like w- no, the, the no, ball no, dropping no. on Times Square. I was, I
1: was busy. <laughs> but, uh, you <laughs> know, what is interesting you. to think about is, mm-hmm. though, uh, the East Coast goes two hours ahead of the central time zone because they haven't caught up yet to this little practice. And then an hour later, the central time zone goes two hours ahead of the mountain time zone to the west. And then they go two hours ahead of us. Uh, And then so on, all the way around the globe. And then everybody gets all, it's like an accordion that stretches out pleat by pleat and then all comes back together again one hour ahead of where we all were. We were
0: speculating last night, Steve and I, about how they started keeping time in the first place. And you would have had to have a fixed point, you know, with a sundial to actually start the year. And, why, you know, obviously the year didn't magically start in January. That was some construction. So... Um, Mary, do you have any idea about that? No, I don't, but
3: I'm <laughs> sure there's a reason.
0: There probably is. Somebody had a joke meme out there that showed them moving the Stonehenge. Stonehenge, <laughs> oh. every year, like... <laughs> for daylight yeah. savings time.
1: <laughs> you know, actually, I got a little ad for you. Uh, it's a wonderful ad. Uh, if you've never been to Redding, or if you have been to Redding... Why? Uh, way up in the far north of California, there's a wonderful thing there. Worth going all the way to Redding just for. It's the Sundial Bridge. And it's not just because the Gnomon, the tower of the bridge, Gnomon spelled G-N-O-M-O-N, it actually casts a shadow, and they have things out there to to the north that show approximately what time it is. But at night, the deck of this pedestrian bridge across the, I think it's the Sacramento River, uh, is all lit up, and it's just ghostly. You're walking this ghostly path at night with this surreal tower rising in front of you, and as you approach the tower... From the side, it presents a continually changing, very surprising cross-section. It's just a wonder. It's a wonder of architecture. The Sundial Bridge in Redding, California. Check it out, winter or summer. I found that it was too hot in the daytime to walk barefoot on that glass Uh deck.
0: (laughs) I was going to say the one redeeming thing I remember about Redding was it was always hot. Over 100
1: degrees in the summer, quite typically. Uh, Mercury is gracing our evening skies again. It's twice as high in the western sky now as Venus, but that will only last for less than the next week. Uh, get out there while you can and look at both Mercury and Venus. And, uh, well, let's see. Oh, we got a few more minutes here. Got a few oddball stuff things for you. I'm going to go to a concert tonight in a cave. And uh, how should I dress? Uh, it's, it's, um, it's maybe a little-known fact that uh, caves are kind of at a worldwide standard temperature set by nature. Pretty much 55 degrees Fahrenheit all the time. And uh, so take some warm clothes. Um, no need
0: for reverb, right? <laughs> on the microphones, <laughs> right. because there's going to be a lot of echo in the cave. Yeah. That's fascinating. You know, here's another little known thing. Up at the caverns, I think they're the Mercer Caverns, on the way up to the Sierra foothills, there's um, a formation that they used to play organ concerts on, kind of like um, hitting them with hammers, and they would make different
1: tones. Blu-ray caverns are you talking about? Um, that's another
0: one. They also uh-huh. have one there. Yeah. Um, so, if you wanted to really go to a cave concert... That would be the one to go to where they play a formation. It makes different sounds on the stalactites.
1: my dad knew. Probably not
0: what you're going to tonight.
1: (laughs) My dad knew the guy, Dr. Sprinkle, who drilled (laughs) the holes in the stalactite to tune them to just the right pitch. And then there was an organ, an underground organ, that played the stalactites. And it was an organ, the world's largest organ, and it extended into hallway. Of course, now it might be considered anathema environmentally that somebody's drilling holes in stalactites. But anyway, it was quite a marvelous sound.
0: Biologists would be aghast at all of that. (laughs) They would be horrified. But, you know, people did a lot of things back then that they didn't understand had permanent repercussions to the natural resources.
1: I got one last... Mary, did you want to say something? I I got one last little loose end following up on uh, Maya's story, news story from last week. She pointed out that... um, you know, it was possible to power most or all of this country with renewable energy. And a couple things that are needed is, is advances in storage, which we don't have a whole lot of now outside of, you know, car batteries and things. But it's going to be big. But the other thing she said was you need to have major modern transmission networks. And the basic idea there, she didn't have time to say it when reading that story. But, you know, you can basically store solar energy or wind from between geographic locations. If it's night where you are but it's sunny somewhere else, well if you have a very very effective modern transmission network, especially with what's called H V D C high voltage DC, that's gonna be all the rage in the future for really reliable, strong transmission long distances. So if it's not if the wind's not blowing where you are, but it is blowing a few states away, or if the sun's not shining it's cloudy where you are, but it's sunny a few states away, if you're all connected with a network, you can you know, transport this energy all over the place. So transmission, like storage, is key to that. And in fact, transmission kind of plays a role, like storage. So there you go.
0: And I wanted to mention that um, if you are listening and you'd like to write in, uh, we're always interested in your comments and questions, and we always take suggestions about future guests. Uh, Between all of us, we often generate a long list of guests we'd like to have. We are looking forward to having the UC Santa Cruz Fossil Fuel Students, activists on the show to talk about what they're doing to uh, try to get the university to divest in fossil fuel from fossil fuels. And we also have Peter fikowski coming next up week. next week. But if you have a suggestion of a guest, we're always interested in hearing from you, and you can write to us um, simply by going to Radio Planet Watch at gmail.com just write us a note with their contact their name and maybe a little link to their bio and we'd be happy to consider them for a future guest on this show
1: and a shout out to uh, last week i had a riddle and uh one of our listeners uh, responded and um it was bill somebody but next week (laughs) i will have more time to come up with my analysis of his analysis it was very astute And And does he uh, get a prize? Oh, yeah. If he likes chocolate, that's what I said I would, you know, he might have to come meet me to get it. We're going to (laughs) hold you
0: to that. We're going to have to mail him the chocolate. Uh, We want to thank you for tuning in to Planet Watch again on this wonderful Sunday uh, or wherever you're listening in Columbus, Ohio or Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Thank you for tuning in to Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman.
1: I'm Joe Jordan. Keep an eye on the sky. And we'll see
0: you next week.